Good evening, good afternoon, good morning, and welcome to another exciting episode of Tales in Our Times. Good day, good day, reader. <laughs> good day, reader. Not good night, because that sounds like a goodbye, and we're not done yet, we only just started. Uh, my name's Janet. My name's George. Wouldn't it be great if you got into podcasts that were only like a minute and a half long? <laughs> just like, hey, I hope you're having a great day. Bye. Bye. See ya. <laughs> I, tell, I tell you a single anecdote from my day. And then leave. Go on then. Oh. Oh, no. <laughs> I thought you were going to tell me an anecdote then. I think, I think we should stick to the script. I don't have any. I mean... I mean, I, I have some. Rubbish at telling stories. I, I can't share them because I'd get into trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, any of our anecdotes cannot be recorded public. and placed in a yeah public no. uh, access because okay. we're all about that. You know, we're um, community managed and run, and uh, happy to be a part of your public access entertainment. Basically, it's free, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I mean. You haven't got more access than that. It's free. Yeah, we're not like a state run, nothing or nothing. But but we are free. And uh, in case you're wondering why sometimes the episodes don't come out on time, it's because we're free. <laughs> and and we hope you're free too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because you've got to be free to do what you want. you got to be free. Mom, what are you reading, mate? Oh, okay. So um, I'm... Quite pleased with myself. I just finished The Sentence is Death by Anthony Horowitz. Um, I cannot... I think I mentioned before that this is um, the second book in a series that he started writing with himself as a character where he sort of shadows this um, consultant detective who's often called upon by the Metropolitan Police in London to solve the unsolvable blah, blah, blah. Wait, anyway, but... Um, Talk and about so, a self-insert. But, um. but the character that Anthony Horowitz creates of himself is, I guess, is like a caricature in print, perhaps. And it's very self-deprecating because sometimes he's, like, really moody and ticked off because the detective guy is a detective, so he knows how to detect and does, you know, a great job with that. That's his thing. Unfortunately, he doesn't have many other skills apart from making model airplanes and um reading he's in a he's in a book group which makes him that's a hey very important skill yeah 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 but he doesn't really have like the you know gentle nuances of human interaction and you know often says things that um anthony horowitz kind of corrects him that's inappropriate you can't say that you don't say that anymore doesn't make any difference he still carries on like a you know, just saying whatever he wants to get the job done. But the way that it's set up and um, it's based around London and he does a really nice job of saying, you know, and then we were going over like Hornsey Bridge or the Vauxhall Bridge or um, different areas. And I don't know London that well. I know it quite well. Um, well, not even quite well. I know it, let's say. I've been, I've wandered around London several times. I've been... Months. I've been to London. <laughs> I've seen it on a map. No, 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 no. I've been, obviously. But it, it gives you a really clear image. You only have to have a little bit of knowledge, I think, of the London geography to be able to relate to some of the places that he mentions in the book. So I found that really um, illustrative. That's not the right word. Yeah. Really well 
yeah so i i could see it it i mean yeah. and he is he is a master wordsmith i don't i don't think you can argue um that he isn't but for me this this just this setup it it just took me and i say this repeatedly and i i did make a point the other day i was thinking about it that i'm going to stop saying it but it took me straight into the book that the setting i mean because the book starts like on a uh tv show set in the middle of london and so you've got that going on and then he meets up with this detective guy and the way he describes the detective like i say he's kind of a bit neanderthal you know he he has <laughs> some damn. human skills because he has a relationship with somebody who lives in his um apartment building who's uh i think he's in his <laughs> he's about 15 or 16 and he's got muscular dystrophy and he's in a wheelchair and he befriends this boy so there is a human side to him but it's just you don't see it much and more often to see him saying something wrong you mean you mean people skills when you say human skills you don't mean like human advanced skills. hunting and gathering as compared to neanderthals no, no and i don't mean uh, physiology or any of that mm. anatomy i mean like interacting with people in a way uh, yes. that society expects today, I guess. Anyway. The perfected tool building uh, capability. <laughs> but he's got this hidden backstory that the Anthony Horowitz character is trying to get out of him, but he doesn't like to share anything personal. So um, that's kind of like a bit of a teaser all the way through. Um, so anyway, it's like I say, it's the second one in a series. The first one is called The Word is Murder. This one is called The Sentence is, De is Death. And one of the characters in it is a writer and she writes these haikus. She's a very ascorbic character. I didn't like her at all. She just, sort of just gives you the impression that if you went too near her, you'd get poked like a stick mm -hmm. or something. But she writes this book of haikus and one of them... Um, and I know I'm going to remember this wrong. I did try and find it in the book, but I couldn't find it. So um, instead of reading the book again, I'm just going to try and phrase it. But it, it's something like, you whisper in my ear, I feel your breath. The sentence is death. And that's Whoa. this haiku that is Whoa. pivotal in the story. But I, I just thought it was a great haiku. And I'm not, I do like poetry, but I like very specific kinds of poetry. Anyway, enough of that, because that's me talking for over five minutes about one book. It's great. Read it. The series, like I say, the first one is called The Word is Murder. Anthony Horowitz. Look it up. It's a great one. The word is murder. The sentence is death. The paragraph is manslaughter. <laughs> the punctuation <laughs> is killing. <laughs> anyway, so that's what I first finished. And then um, I am going to start reading a book that i think you've already read george that billy bragg which i meant to bring in here with me and i forgot ah, Can you remember the title the three dimensions of freedom which is not a narrative right no no it's like essays and thoughts on the state of the world and corruption and what we need for political freedom and actual freedom it's we were talking about this a little bit earlier. It's definitely like a white guy's lens on this on the thing. But I do I do think Billy Bragg is someone who has like consistently been in that space, like actually doing sort of counterculture work his whole life. And I can tell so you I respect in case, it a bit more. Yeah. And 
if you don't know, Billy Bragg is a, an English uh, singer, songwriter, protest singer, writer as well now. Um, but I can remember him um, singing in protest and the miners' strike uh, when Margaret Thatcher was in mm. power back in the 80s. So he has got a long, you know, resume of really trying to get the word out there that things need to be better and fairer. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I hope you enjoy it. What are you reading, George? Uh, I'm still working on the feminist subversion of the economy. It's very, very dense. <laughs> you don't uh, need to lend me that one. <laughs> coward. I just it's, don't think I've got it, the brain power for it. It's really worth reading. It, you know, I think you have to recognize the parts of the economy that we make invisible because we have deemed them as feminine, you know, like straight up the market doesn't work without someone at home cleaning clothes and cooking food and, and raising you know, cleaning children. the house and raising children. And yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's, it's a, not a timeless lesson because hopefully that will be over one day and I don't know, people will get paid for taking care of themselves. Um, if, I mean, if it's all about money, but so I'm reading that. And then in my narrative corner, I just recently started something that I'm so, so excited for. It's called our wives under the sea by Julia Armfield. Uh, and I'm just going to read the back for you because I don't want to, I haven't, you know, gotten very far with it yet, so I don't want to try and uh, synopsize it. Leah is changed. A marine biologist, she left for a routine expedition months earlier. Only this time, her submarine sank to the seafloor. When she finally surfaces and returns home, her wife, Miri, knows that something is wrong. Barely eating and lost in her thoughts, Leah rotates between rooms in their apartment, running the taps morning and night. Whatever happened in that vessel, whatever it was they were supposed to be studying before they were stranded, Leah has carried part of it with her onto dry land and into their home. As Miri searches for answers, desperate to understand what happened below the water, she must face the possibility that the woman she loves is slipping from her grasp. Ouch. Scary. Yeah. Sounds like it's right up your street. I love it. This was recommended to me by a friend, and I was recently in Giovanni's room, the bookshop again, and just, I couldn't resist. You're going to give us the first line. Okay, so here's the thing. I am. The deep sea is a haunted house, a place in which things that ought not to exist move about in the darkness. Ah! <laughs> Sorry, that was a little bit of an odd scream there, but it, it was quite freaky. Yeah, that was like an alternate dimension Wilhelm scream. Sorry. <laughs> it's Hey, it's great. Okay. So we've established that you and I are both still reading. That's good. That's good. That's healthy. I think we need that right now. <laughs> Do we have any news to talk about? Do we have any news? Um, Don't we? I thought we were some library stuff. We do have some library stuff. So um, I came across an article uh, in an educational publication that talked about 
the damage that is done to students' education, children's education, when they don't have librarians in schools. Mm. And this is appears, I, you know, I, I didn't go into it that much, but it appears that it's becoming almost um, epidemic, almost, that they're cutting librarians and uh, media specialists from schools, you know, and children are still being expected to meet these, like, literacy goals in standardized tests and a lot of that is supported by librarians you know reinforcing reading skills and encouraging kids to read and directing them to you know good solid literature um i did know a couple of facts that illustrate this um currently there are only four certified librarians in philadelphia public schools um for the whole district um, and this school year, the um, independent, I think it's called the Independent School District of Houston or something like that. Um, but they eliminated 28. Sounds appropriately Texan. Yeah. They eliminated 28 school librarian positions, you Yeesh. know. And I just think, what are we doing? What are our priorities? And, and they're all think there it's all driven by um finances but it's like librarians are integral integral to schools and teachers achieving their academic goals for students and I, I think one of the other things about philadelphia i think back in the 90s there was almost 300 um school librarians across philadelphia so you know oh. to have dropped to four that's quite huge so um Support your school librarians if you have them. If you don't have them, go to school board meetings. Start hassling people would be my yeah. word. And watch out just for your public libraries as well. It's happening all over. I know New York just recently, New York Public Libraries just announced that they can no longer handle seven-day availability because of budget cuts passed by Mayor Eric Adams, who, hey, man, I hope you listen. Fuck you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's all right. I don't feel bad about it. He put robot cop dogs in New York, oh. you know? He's, he sucks a lot. He's, like, at parties, like, hanging out with celebrities. Like, that's what his job is. So I would like to say something about that. Um, I think public libraries have become this, you know, all-encompassing access to literature and resources when i was a mm. kid um the library was barely open six days a week never mind seven but that was from a practical point of view because there was only one librarian it was a small little village um and if mm. it was a if it was about giving people more downtime giving them a break from the daily grind then i would support sunday library closes but because it's just about money Nah, that's not right. Yeah. And for some people, cutting... it might be their only day to go to the library. Why are you cutting the budget of the library? It's like altruistically the best thing your community has going for them. Like for them, the, the, the one thing that hardly anyone can complain about in a, like a structured community is the library you ever heard anyone who's like ah i hate how many damn books they have it's <laughs> so much choice 
I'm so sick of all these Stephen Kings. I have such a clear idea of his writing voice. You are correct, George. I can't argue with that. Um, so, you know, support your librarians. There was reference to uh, in this article about, you know, whether or not this would even be a dying profession in years down the road, which I think is absolute. Uh, and, you know, and some people might say, you know, you, you're living in a, a bygone age holding on to that. But I, I'm sorry, but I think that having people who know about books, who know about uh, literacy skills and literacy styles are essential. If for no other reason in child development, in education, you know, so that's my take. For that's life, what I, think. I mean, you know, for any time in life, you know, we have, we have repeatedly said like, it is important for all people of all ages. You can you can get back into reading. You can get better at reading. You can learn how to read. You can, at any point in your life, you can get into absorbing stories and learning from them and, and, and having a, a more diverse experience of... of or a, a more diverse presentation of other people's experiences, you know, it is. To that point, I think you bring up a really valid point. You remember that couple we met at the reading festival? Um, what was her name? She posted Monique. Monique and her husband was Rick, and he said he didn't grow up. I think it was Nick. Rick. Rick. Oh, Rick! I thought it was Nick. Okay. Well, sorry, Monique, if we got your husband's name wrong, but. Um, <laughs> She Sorry, said she'd always been thousand. a big reader, but he had only been a reader like in the relative because they they were sort of grown ups. They had grown up children or older children, and um, he had only started reading. I think in the last sort of like five or ten years under her mm. influence. So it's never you're never too old to start a reading habit, and he absolutely <sighs> loved it. They go to reading festivals, and so you know. Fair play. Yeah. Okay. Do we want to move on? Because otherwise, we're never going to get to what the okay. Just about. I do well, one one mention. Um, we oh, have yeah. talked about the Booker Prize um, before on previous episodes. The final nomination, the final winner, will be announced on November twenty sixth. To see who's the best at booking. Who's the best at booking? Who's the best booker? Yeah, it's going to be announced on November twenty sixth. But also, if you go to the Booker Prize website and scroll down to the bottom of the page, for this year's finalists, of which I think we said they were six because we did look at them previously, and mm -hmm. um, there there are like these little short videos of like actors just reading snippets from each of the finalists, and I watched it like two or three today. They're really great. If you want, if you want to like preview a book or see if you like the voice or the tone or any of that stuff, these are a great way to do it. You know, they're all relatively new books, so I would highly recommend going to the Booker Prize website, scrolling right down to you see the videos. You might even see some actors that you recognise. Who knows? But um, just go and have a look because they're really short. It's like a little. Snack app book. We like books. Yeah, what a cool way to get like introduced to a book. Ugh. Yeah, absolutely. So cool. So, George, what are we talking about today? Because you've taken my, you know, my document away. 
in our new season. Yeah. We're doing things different. I will different. lead us. I will lead us through the darkness. Um, we're talking about something very timely, uh, despite the fact that we can never stick to a schedule for our lives. <laughs> um, we're talking about something coming up here in the United States. Uh, the end of the week we are recording this uh, will be Thanksgiving. Um, something that is uh, well known to everyone, uh, I think, is fair to say, who lives in the United States. Um, but known by some differently than others. And rather than looking at narratives that are centered around Thanksgiving or that feature Thanksgiving or the time of year, we want to look at the narrative of Thanksgiving's, Thanksgiving itself. So acknowledging that there are stacks of books out there, if you're interested, that are written around Thanksgiving oh, yeah. or are a um, fictional interpretation of the event that actually led to the national holiday, we're actually going to see if we can't find some grains of truth. I think yeah. that's what I'm feeling today is. So tell me. So... One of the big, you know, we talk about this a lot. We cannot but talk about propaganda. It is, and I'm not just talking about having a propaganda, if you know what I'm <laughs> talking about. Like, I went down the street to look at the shops. I had a propaganda in the shoe shop. A uh, propaganda. I had a propaganda at the butchers, so if I had some infamity. Quick translation, gander means to have a look at something, but go on. No, don't let them know. It's our secret. <laughs> yeah, we talk about... So one of the biggest things that I am a advocate for is the recognition of narrative so that you can recognize it in real life, right? When you learn, When you learn the ways in which stories are spun and sort of applied to real life situations in order to make them digestible in order to uh, trigger your responses from other stories that are familiar or recognizable to you uh, it, it really helps you get at those grains of truth that you were talking about mom the ability to sort of dissect that and i must say thanksgiving gives us a feast so Applying the rules that you just said, if if I took everything that is put out in the mainstream, I've been living in the United States over 20 years, everything I've ever been fed because I didn't grow up with Thanksgiving as a holiday, my interpretation when applying it to the, the real world would be that indigenous people in America and white people are very supportive and caring of each other, particularly hoping that the the white population is grateful to the Native Americans for what they gave at all that time ago in the 17th century. Would I be yeah. correct? Well... Because I don't actually see that in the world, so I'm not sure if I can believe the story <laughs> I've been fed. I don't see it in modern times, so... You know, yeah. what you're saying is not working for me right now. So, Well, you know, it's 2023. So I think we're not, we're certainly not the first to break 
this story wide open. But in the research for this, I think we both found a few things that were pretty surprising to us. Um, but so if you are new to the concept of uh, everything that glittering that is glittering, not being gold, the narrative that we receive in the mainstream about Thanksgiving, about the first Thanksgiving, quote unquote, in 1621, was a bit... Fallacious? Is that fallacy? Bit of a Don't fallacy. Don't make that face at me. Yeah, because that other Based word you said has... Based on a mistaken belief. Fallacious. Yeah. It's... Watch. Fallatio. Ah! Ah! That's the word I was connecting it to, and I... <laughs> I know! That's why I just said it, because you wouldn't stop. But fallacious means from a mistaken belief, which is... Thanksgiving. It's a it's a fallacious. Um, anyway, I got it. Now I can't say it anymore because I got embarrassed. Um, but let's break it down sort of from the beginning. OK, tell me. So the pilgrims come to Plymouth County in colony 1621, 1620, 1620. Yeah, the Plymouth Colony. Sorry, I said county. They hadn't gotten that far yet. So in 1620, they arrive in the uh, in Plymouth Colony and prepare to colonize. Unfortunately, they land in November, so all of the crops have no chance of surviving the winter. And for ah. a little while, neither do they. Um, about half of their number is wiped out by the time spring comes around, oh, um, which yeah. is very tragic. You know, that's that's death. hard winter is scary. Yeah. The sentence is death. Something that many... <laughs> I should get a retainer no. from Anthony Horowitz the amount of times I drop his name on things, but go on. The page breaks our grim <laughs> reapers. Sorry. Um, I just It's such a fun format. Uh, after that winter in 1621, uh, the Wampanoa tribe are sort of present in that area. Like, that is, like, their... Is it their land? Well, it is certainly their land, yeah. Oh, interesting. But so they they do save the pilgrims, essentially. Like, they come to them, and uh, they had some people who speak English already. Oh, how could that have happened? How did they do that? There wasn't anybody there before 1620, was there? Well, only if you count all the Americans who had been there for at least 12,000 years. (laughs) Um, And all the relationships that they had already had with Europe and other people from other countries. Um, The people who spoke English in the Wampanoa tribe were uh, ex-slaves who had escaped from England after being picked up by slave raid. And they still they still helped the pilgrims. And part of the reason why they did this was for um, protection from uh, hostile tribes it was sort of like a, a politically motivated move. Um, but they did very literally save those pilgrims' lives. And then and that, they so did, just... Question? Answer. So, so did, so did they um, develop some kind of treaty or, or plan where they lived side by side from 1621? Did it, was that a thing? It was. Okay. 
The end. Um, oh. No, they did. So they came to an agreement based on the protection thing I was talking about before. Okay. Like, um, the pilgrims were supposed to provide protection for the Wampanoa tribe, and they were essentially letting them live on their land and, like, saving their lives. But they... This is the crazy... Th- okay, so from... If you just look at American history and do a little bit of research into all of the treaties that the American government has made with the native peoples of North America, you will see how despicable their track record with keeping those promises is. It is essentially a stopgap maneuver to allow the settlers to continue to take land and and, uh, colonize because the natives have gone back and will not see until the next day when they can come and do another treaty and the Americans will say, oh, yes, of course. Or the settlers will say, yes, of course. We agree. We won't go any further than this stake. And then so on and so forth. Exactly. Ad infinitum. So this is, you know, uh, more of a a day of mourning for Native people than uh, any sort of celebration. Um, I think it is righteous to celebrate the graciousness with which, like, settlers were welcomed into this country. Uh, But it should have been swiftly followed with, like... A, a sign to the door like yeah you're, you survived the winter now go the Bye. fuck home yeah <laughs> see ya yeah because so we were talking about kernels of truth right so one of them is that north america had had people on it for a long long time um so that's like one of the main uh lies about thanksgiving that we're sort of poking at today can i say it's a a myth buster. <laughs> it's a busted myth. Yeah, yeah, myth busted. <laughs> um, and then the other, so th- one of the other great myths about the Thanksgiving narrative is this, this, this idea, um, the, this idea that God prepared the land for them. You can read several reports of American settlers Uh, white settlers who are coming across huge swaths of cultivated land and crops that are irrigated and there are paths beaten through the forest and groves of trees. This land must have been prepared for us by God. Oh, sorry, is there a question in the back? Well, just like, so the problem with that is that they brought with them their white god, but the people who already live there, you know, they have their own beliefs. Huh? Well, we'll get to, we'll get to religious specifics later. Okay. I just want to talk about the fact that once again, what white people historically would rather uh, attribute to God or aliens, it was in fact just indigenous people once doing again. the work doing the work you know <laughs> the so so myth busted number two god didn't do it it was fucking native americans dog breaking like, their backs you, literally 
cultivating the land in such a way that was absolutely innovative sustainable yeah innovative yeah i mean if we want to talk about innovation think about like a little bit further to the south the way that conquistadors treated like central american indigenous people and like the beautiful very complex cities that were found you know and and then the conquistadors were like what what no way You, you want me to put my but in the water? No, thank you. That's what my left hand is for. I, have oh. to the, I put the devil on the devil hand, <laughs> and then I don't shower for years. Why? And then what I get dysentery. Running water? I hate you. I'm going to kill all of you. <laughs> That's essentially what colonialism is like. Um, yeah, because we were there, so, dear listeners. So, so another another myth busted that uh, God didn't do it. There was no there was no divine intervention. Uh, America is taking, reaping the benefits now. I'm sorry, the United States is reaping the benefits now from um, indigenous people, as it will continue to do throughout its history. Uh, the other thing that sort of we want to bust up the myth about is. Um, this was your one, Mum. The system of ownership. Oh my gosh, I couldn't believe this. The so, property. Yeah, because we we read in this article about this uh, book that's been written recently, right? What is it? Um, this land yeah. is their land. The Wampanoag Indians, Plymouth Colony, and the troubled history of Thanksgiving by David J. Silverman. David From what J. it looks like, it's a very good book. However, I would also recommend An Indigenous People's History of the United States by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz for an Indigenous perspective on it. Thank you for that. Well, so um, so he's written this book. So this was what I was um, looking when I was looking um, for uh, sources on this topic. And I and really, if you think through it logically, it totally makes sense. But. Yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe I've just never thought about it that much. I don't think about Thanksgiving because I never really celebrated Thanksgiving. But, you know, one of the arguments, people who want to um, reinforce this myth of the pilgrims coming along and, you know, everything being jolly and we're all friends and we love each other, but then the pilgrims <laughs> somehow come out on top, um, always say, well, you know, they arrived and there was no system of um, land ownership. And so it was you know, wide open for them to kind of put their flag in the ground. But what we found out was, thank you, David oh, is Silver. It, is that they, not entirely true, maybe? Not exactly true. It was a big myth buster for me. They had what they called community or what is referred to as community ownership. So tribes owned pieces of the land and they knew full well where their land ended and where their land started. So to say they had no system of ownership is baloney. And I just want to put that out there because it was a big eye opener to me there. <laughs> yeah, loads of baloney. I uh, just want to shout out um, the person who wrote this article, Claire Bugos, in the Smithsonian Magazine, um, had a really good uh, image or like thought experiment to clear up any misunderstanding which was if one of the wampano people went to england and said hello i'm here to buy some land please they could buy that but then they would never say 
this is my country now. This is would. no longer England. This is North America. Because that's crazy illegal. I think it would be theft. But the settlers did it because they had guns. Are willfully <laughs> ignorant of yeah. Well, I mean, violence I mean, is definitely a part of it. That that is something that I do question is how they became so powerful. How they became like the dominant authority. I mean, was it just like brute force and pigheadedness? They're like. Sorry, you know, you indigenous people, just back off. We're just pushing, we're pushing, we're pushing. Well, and deception, right? Like we talked about the, this is why I brought up the Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz, just a great author. She has a great book on the Second Amendment that I'm looking to get uh, soon. But she also talks a lot about, you know, she gives a, a, a very compartmentalized history of the treaties that are made by the American government and then the ways in which they just bypass them or don't enforce them typically was what it was. They would send settlers out to the edges of the territories and just like give them resources to settle on their own um, regardless of what the legal agreement with the Native Americans was pretty fucked up i mean just like <laughs> really the most devious shit like it if it didn't enable a genocide it would be comical you know it's like so so like well but we had our fingers crossed behind our backs so <laughs> i didn't mean actually, it this is our country now <laughs> i mean and Sorry, did you want to continue with some more? No, no, no. I didn't want to I, I was going to say, voice. well, the other thing that we talked about as well is, you know, one of the other big kind of like justifications for the pilgrims landing here and having to, you know, really find a way of life and, and build well, they were, crops. They were and, fleeing. Um, they were running away from religious yeah. persecution because they were being persecuted yeah, right. for their religious beliefs and practices. Because they were Protestants, right? Protestant, Protestants. Um, yeah. Tell me something about that, George. Where did all of these people necessarily come from? Oh, well, they were English. So, they, you know, in England, English you people. can be doing that. Yeah, yeah, the pilgrims, they were English. Um, they weren't necessarily living in England at the time that they moved to uh, America. They were living in Holland where there was no such religious persecution. And for all intents and purposes, they didn't go there for that reason. They traveled to the quote-unquote new world for economic opportunity because they were greedy little piggies. And they well, they wanted to establish a re religious theocracy. They wanted to go somewhere and be like, actually, our version of Jesus Christ is in charge now. Okay, so this is there's some couple of things this brings up in my mind. Like, um, number one, they weren't being persecuted when they left no. Holland, um, no, and no. yet, and so they came to a country. They left a country where they were perfectly capable of practicing whatever religion they wanted to go to mm -hmm. a country to try and spread the word of Pinky White Jesus. I mean, yeah, yeah, <laughs> whoa. 
I hated that, but Sorry. it was very funny. No, it's okay. It's just, Never it's just... apologize. You're absolutely um, correct. He was pinky white Jesus. But his, it's almost as if they were doing religious persecution, which is weird. It. They were committing it's pretty, it. But, they were committing persecution. So the thing that it brings up in my mind is, is like in modern days, you know, um, people come to this country from all over the world and they have different religious beliefs. But one of the things that kind of sticks out in my mind is one of the biggest sort of like hate crimes or persecutions of peoples in this country is because of their religious beliefs. But we want to try and believe that it was a, you know, a, a, a land of Eden for people who just wanted to believe in Jesus or God. And yet we have, we still have problem or people, I don't, I don't have problems. Let me just say that. I, I try not. <laughs> but Routinely, you see people who really have a problem with different um, religious beliefs. So it, I, I don't oh, know how yeah. you can hold on to this one thing and say, well, the pilgrims brought Christianity to the United States. And that was great because everybody should be should have the right to practice religion as they see fit. And yet in the 21st century, people are persecuted every day because they're not necessarily Christians. That's messed up. Yeah, is Islamophobia, anti-Semitism. America is like trying so hard to be a white Christian, you know, ethno-nationalist, uh, <laughs> Christo-fascist. Thumbs all down. The, uh, <laughs> all the thumbs down. So I just wanted to say that because that made me think. Because it's forked up, dude. Forked up, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it is forked up. Um, so, so we've kind of broken down how the narrative of Thanksgiving is is sort of incorrect. Um, I want to really quickly talk about how it came to be known, and then I think we should talk a little bit about what we want to use the time for instead. So basically, well, first of all, harvest feasts, it's like... Oh, florals for spring? Groundbreaking. Everyone always had a harvest meal for, you know, at the same time. Yeah, well, yes, you. Yeah, so when I was growing up, and I, I'm pretty sure it probably still happens in England, in the autumn or in the fall, and October, you would have a harvest festival. Obviously, crops are all being harvested, so it goes back to a more um, sort of uh, agricultural society. But... Um, and the way that That's we celebrated that is that everybody would donate something to a community Ooh. collection, usually in the schools, and then it would be distributed to those people who didn't have as much within the community. But that was it. It was an assembly at school. It wasn't a day off. It was. Yeah. So, and I think that it's recognized. Still... It's like based around the, um, you know, seasonal calendar, you know. The pagan celebrations which they hate it when we talk about i love the pagans they're so cool and sexy <laughs> what's, what's wrong with paganism it's awesome anyway um so yeah that's so thing. yeah that is the thing and and i i think that is kind of well, now we're going in opposite order. Now we're talking about what we want Thanksgiving to be. I think that is what to take away from it, right? I don't think we should stop gathering with families in the harvest season and eating and 
donating, you know, like being giving, being gracious with what you have, trying to make sure others can have what you don't. But on a larger scale, that sort of like entails giving back. And for the most part, that is to marginalized communities of brown and black people, um, indigenous and otherwise living under a white supremacist state. Well, so let's talk about how it came to be, because it didn't just we weren't we weren't just like ah, this is just the the retelling, the rumor that we spread about this thing that happens. It actually, unfortunately, served kind of a diabolical purpose, even in its writing. Uh, they just couldn't stop choosing the villain dialogue options in the Pilgrim RPG. <laughs> In 1769, a group of the descendants of pilgrims felt their cultural authority slipping away as more and more Catholics and Jews came from Europe. They wanted real badly to build tourism and to kind of assert their place in the national history. So they became, they made the pilgrims essentially the progenitors of the country. They, they were like, oh, yeah, our ancestors, that was us. You're so welcome. And we're so good at talking to the Native <laughs> Americans that we got as a whole country. You're freaking welcome, bro. Even though that's not at all what happened. Um, and it also served, uh, some would say a little conveniently, to distance them from their fault in the Indian Wars, which had like not come to a close uh, in 1793. Or 1769, but like had hit a, a peak and then declined. Um, and then, unfortunately, for those exact same reasons, in 1863, Abraham Lincoln uh, set it up as a national holiday. For those of us who are history nuts, you might note 1863, post the Civil War, it was something that Lincoln wanted to do to promote national unity, which is super dope and all. However, you took the fucking Puritan, we <laughs> pulled one over on all the natives genocide holiday and said, now y'all whites be friends about this. Because we kicked all the people with melanin out. It, I, you know, not a great move by old Abe. Um, we'll have to talk about presidential narratives one day. But so that's kind of, that's how it became a national holiday. That's how it became known as it is today. Um, the fucking sham that it is. Okay. Yes. Not that I have any feelings on it. No. Well, so... Here's the thing, and I think that one of the something that we talked about, we we had an episode on um, historical fiction stories that were set in history, and that we I think you would agree, George, that we do solidly believe that you should be as true if you're going to set something in uh, whether it's historical or even in the recent um, time. You should be as true and authentic about the events as you possibly can. And that the true Thanksgiving narrative is a bunch of white people came to a new continent and basically wheedled their way in until they owned the whole bloody country. 
and the people who had actually been there for thousands of years got, um, you know, sidelined and their lands murdered. were taken away. They were murdered. They were abused. And even Small now... Box. Yeah, they were infected. Um, Even Enslaved. now... You've got yeah. reservation lands in different states in the U.S., but the problems that those peoples have been left with because of their lack of economic power, and I, I say that loosely because I, I don't have a lot of factual information, but I think it's true. Um, it is, yeah. You you know, you have, there are high levels of, you know, substance abuse, alcoholism, um, domestic abuse, certainly abuse of Native women, Indigenous women that, and I, I, yeah. I'm saying this kind of... The kidnapping of indigenous women in America is truly epidemic. Like, it is something that happens every day. They don't follow up on it. No, it's like it's almost dismissed. Like, it's not that important. And I think, you know, all of those things are huge. Apart from the initial, um, you know, takeover you know, back in the um, 17th and 18th century... These these kind of atrocities have continued throughout time, and that is the true nature of that event. And I'm, I know it doesn't sit well with people, but that is the accuracy of it. And I think we have to acknowledge yeah. that, um, just as a common decency, you know. Yeah. And we should it's be not, shamed. You know, I don't. I don't think. Definitely, I, I agree with you completely. I think, you know, the, the important part about history is that it does keep you honest. Um, and I think there are lots of, I think America culturally loves to fudge the history a little bit in its national um, But jazz hands on everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They put a little glitter on it. And I think people are suspicious now of histories of like the idea that facts can be carried down in a reliable way and that's understandable but like really problematic because now when you hear histories from indigenous sources or like from sources of color you know like from people who have lived the black experience in the united states um people I, you know, people generally, I have witnessed this maybe once or twice in my life, but there's an instinct to say like, oh yeah, well you're spinning it to be, you know, sympathetic to you. It's like, well, some people don't have to do that. Some people did that to lie to you because the real sympathetic narrative was on the other side. Yeah. You know, it's like it's a it's a matter of knowing who holds the power in the history telling narrative. And typically it's the settlers, it's the colonizers, because, you know, all all of these our concepts are like white building blocks, white concepts. But it. Yeah, it really is. It's a shame and I think that, you know, going back to talking about school libraries and things, you know, in elementary schools, they, they teach children the the sort of the happy clappy version of Thanksgiving. And I can even remember <laughs> you dressed up happy as a clappy. pilgrim. And, and I think that they oh, need yeah, to... Oh, yeah, I love the belt buckle hat. Yeah, yeah. But I think they need to start to introduce a bit more 
accuracy, even at an early age, I think that that would be doing future generations a huge um, benefit. We're doing them a disservice because they're growing up and it's just perpetuating this thing. Um, and you were. And I, I'll say, I think they are trying to, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that most. Not in like Florida, but. <laughs> we in love. Other places. <laughs> we do like Florida. I'd hate anybody to think we didn't oh, like yeah, it yeah, as yeah. a state. It's just that there are some things that go on there that I don't know what who's driving. Legally, I don't love Florida. No. But like people, a lot of the vibes, the food is good. There's a lot of good stuff about the state. Great beaches. But the laws, great beaches, terrible laws. Um. Anyway. But just because we are, I think we're getting close to, to wrapping up. So I was just going to go on because before you started talking about uh, Honest Abe, you were talking about, you know, still um, spending time with family and being grateful and sharing what you have. And I think that we should use it as a day to be grateful to Native peoples for their generosity all those hundreds of years ago. And also, you know, use it as a moment of reflection to how you can support your community today, particularly those people perhaps who don't have as much as you do, you know, because we right. are, I think in America, there is a, there is a huge split between the haves and the have nots. They've huge issues mm. with poverty, which there are in a lot of the Western world, not just this country. I wouldn't want anybody to think that I wasn't recognizing because I know and I'm always referring to the UK, but I know that the number of um, food banks in the UK has, like when I was a child, they never even existed, right? Mm. And in the last 20 so years, you know, even the smallest of communities have got a food bank, and that is hugely telling. But um, but I just think, you know, we uh, middle-class Western individuals have a lot to be grateful for and maybe I should actually say middle-class white Western people, perhaps. We have a lot to be you grateful know. for. We have a lot available to us, and we're really very spoiled. So I am part part of, like, recognising a true narrative is to try and... We can't redress the balance. That's not within my power. But is to recognise that all of this didn't... It wasn't off the sweat and toil of a bunch of, you know, white religious saviors or some such nonsense you know? yeah y'all didn't do shit so yeah. and i think the way i like to you know i like to i like to focus family i like to focus community i like to focus food and charity those are all very things that i have always liked about the holiday growing up in the u.s but the only way i think we can really show gratitude for the it just feels wrong i don't even want to say it's showing gratitude it's like making making reparations yeah. like i i think every day every person living in america should try should be trying to like figure out how to make it better for indigenous people and marginalized people because that's the history of this country is that, you know, we we fed human beings into the meat grinder and out the other side came free labor, you know. 
Yeah, and I think we discussed before that a lot of people would say, you know, that it's it's um, a long time ago. But as we've already mentioned, people are still suffering the consequences of something hap that happened centuries ago, you know. And I think it, it behooves, you know, governments, present governments and governments of the future to actually do something that will change things. Um, because as I say, you, I feel like we ha we should show gratitude and acknowledge the the history of Indigenous people, of Native people, of people who've been sidelined in this country. But the only people who can actually make a difference are policymakers, and um, then they need to get their fingers out of their bums and just do something. Yeah. And if you know anybody so... like that, please tell them. Yeah, take their finger out their bum. Um, do ask first before you go poking around anywhere. Oh, yeah. Um, but, you know, try and, you know, try and absorb some indigenous tales. Get some narratives on your plate that are not from white-centric viewpoints. I mentioned Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. Uh... Stephen Graham Jones is a horror novelist who writes with a very clear Native American perspective just off the top of my head. Uh, what about that? Who wrote that play that we were talking about the other day that you said you'd worked on? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> this was a, it was actually, a comedy. Was it was gonna... like a, a satirical thing. Yeah, I was going to uh, bring that up and I completely forgot. Thank you. Um, it, the Thanksgiving play uh, is by Larissa Fasthorse. It was written by her in 2015. Um, I got to... So she started writing it in Ireland, I think, and then was at a few like workshops and uh, play labs throughout the US. Uh, it had its off Broadway production at Playwrights Horizons and then debuted on Broadway at, uh, uh, in 2023. Uh, oh yeah, that's right. Darcy Carden was in it. Um, yeah, it's it's basically it's about four white people trying to make a politically correct first Thanksgiving play. I'm failing. And it's Oh, yeah, it's just miserable, um, but it's very funny. Uh, and I believe Larissa Fast Horse is the first Native American woman to produce a show on Broadway. It doesn't say on the Internet. They said that a lot during I, I worked on the Playwrights Horizons production of it, and they said that then. But, you know, that's white people, so. Who knows? <laughs> so, so we would wish you a um, a joyful holiday, um, or maybe mm. in retrospect you had a joyful holiday. Who knows? But uh, you know, try and remember the the true narrative, and maybe like George was saying, add to your book list a different perspective. And you decide what you believe. But I mean, you know, I think that the facts are the facts. Yeah. And anyone, you know, it's not really a good argument to say that these things happened long in the past because we all are built on the bricks beneath us. But it also isn't the past. 
um, stories being told through television, like Reservation Dogs, um, stories from artists like uh, Cliff. Oh, is it? I can't remember his last name. Nesteroff? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's Cliff Nesteroff. Um, you know, artists who are going to... We just can't talk about it enough. Be fucking grateful. Everything is awesome for you. Yeah. If you're listening to this, odds are you're probably white, and it's probably been pretty chill. And if you're not white, really sorry about all that. <laughs> and let's let's figure out reparations as soon as possible. Yeah. Send us your ideas. <laughs> yeah. This is where we'll do it. We'll do it via the podcast in the Spotify comments. Sure. We'll start a movement. <laughs> Would love that. Two Stop. white people. Right? <laughs> Starting like a free Anglo Saxon, no, no reach. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're more. <laughs> no. I'm more Anglo Saxon than you are, but. That's right. I am a Catholic. Yeah, uh, I'm not. Um, no friction here, by the way. It's just one of those things. Uh, so, so, yeah. Anyway. That's our Thanksgiving. Um, I hope you enjoy yours. You. You know, take the uh, take advantage of being able to spend it with your family or even friends or whoever you spend it with, you know, and enjoy all the great things. But also, you know, keep in mind what it actually meant. Why yeah, it actually I appreciate happened. the fact. Yeah, I appreciate the fact that other people suffered for you to get here. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to try and finish on an up note, but I really kind of feel like there isn't. No. No, and it's okay. The thing is, does it feel gross? Yeah, it should. You should be mad if listening to this makes you feel like, uh, I did. I don't want my Thanksgiving to be that. You're correct. That it sucks, <laughs> but you have to turn that anger onto the people who continue to recreate these situations where we are lying on black and brown people's names and just like. But if if I, I didn't steal people's humanity, I might have to work a job. Oh, man. I hate that. I, I can't. I can't work a job. I have my soft, peachy white peachy. hands. My pinky white hands. <laughs> pinky white. That was it. That's me. Anyway, okay. go out there, read some tales. Don't believe everything that you read. Yeah, we've said that before. Good night. Good evening, goodbye, farewell, adieu, thank you, we'll see you again, hear you, well, we'll speak, I don't know, you'll hear me again soon, whatever. Bye. Have a great holiday. <laughs>